Shaolin shadow boxing. And the Wu Tang sword style. If what you say is true, the Shaolin and the Wu Tang could be dangerous. Do you think your Wu Tang sword can defeat me? Hello, and welcome to another edition of Physical Media Isn't Dead, It Just Smells Funny. On this December episode of Physical Media Isn't Dead, It Just Smells Funny, we had a interesting thing happen for this month's round of titles for the audio portion of this review. As always, you can go read the uh, rest of what I got to review this month on the Aisama blog. And usually those are things that wouldn't make the recording because I thought they were like great or interesting, but not as much so as what I would be talking about on the feed. And also just to give a chance to write some things and for people to read some things as opposed to listening to some things because I like to write. But in this case for this month, it actually just kind of came down to I had this interesting theme that I wanted to do for the audio recording. So just letting you know, things that I have reviewed on the IU Cinema blog, if you are just listening to this from the podcast feed and you haven't gone to check out the blog today, the things that I am reviewing on the blog are a great little piece of like cult music movie history, Get Crazy, by director Alan Arkish, the director of Rock and Roll High School. Uh, we have an Ernst Lubitsch movie called Broken Lullaby, which is this incredibly like heartfelt, devastating portrait about the hypocrisies of war. And then last but not least, certainly not least, we have the Robert Altman, The Long Goodbye. So if you want to read some very short thoughts on those movies, go and check out the Ice in the blog. But this month is special because it seems like something is in the air with uh, all the physical distros around the world and that it now feels as if it is time for martial arts and kung fu and Hong Kong cinema to have its time in the HD 4K time in the sun. So it's been kind of interesting. Arrow, which I'm actually not reviewing this month because I actually purchased that with my own hard-earned dollars because I just wanted to watch them and not have to wax poetic about them on this podcast. But Arrow is putting out the first volume of hopefully many uh, volumes of a Shaw Brothers box set. And it felt like when that got announced, the floodgates opened or there had already been many things in the works in this case. And it seems like all the distributors now are all kind of getting into the game of like Shaw Brothers movies, Hong Kong action cinema, you know, old direct to DVD martial arts films. Like it feels like if you're an action movie fan or specifically a martial arts movie fan, you're about to have a lot of great things come your way in this month because I had gotten the Criterion box set that I'll be reviewing on this episode that is a very much a pinnacle of Hong Kong cinema. It just kind of felt right to lump all the other martial arts films in Hong Kong cinema inspired films that I got this month into one review. So it's a Kung Fu Christmas, everybody. <laughs> I don't really have a special Christmas episode planned for this, but if you are looking for gifts for people this holiday season and they are more action inclined, be it they be fans of, you know, The Matrix Resurrections is coming out. Those are Hong Kong inspired films all the way down to using uh, Yin Wo Ping as the action choreographer for those if you have someone in your life who wants to explore more asian cinema outside the realm of art house uh you know get into the more genre specific things i'd say this would be a good episode to listen to slash a good month to dive into that so without further ado i'd like to get into our first title from a newcomer to this podcast we have 88 films u.s release of the chong che film by shaw brothers studios Disciples of Shaolin. Now, full disclosure with me in a Chinese cinema and martial arts cinema is that while I am always chomping at the, the bit to watch more of it, I'm actually not all that well-versed in it. I have not seen that very many Shaw Brothers movies. I, I would say I've seen like, you know, The Five Deadly Venoms or 36 Chamber of the Shaolin. And, you know, I, I you know I actually am kind of hesitant to say more because I feel like I'll get like Golden Harvest in the Shaw Brothers studio mixed up in uh, some like 
crazed martial arts fan is going to drop kick me into outer space for misidentifying. But this is to say, I love these movies every time I watch them. I love movement in movies. This is why I like musicals so much and why I like dance movies so much. And the balletic grace of kung fu, especially these older kung fu films from like the 60s and the 70s before things got a little more fluid and like, you know, you stop seeing like the beats to the, uh, the action happening. It's really riveting to watch for me. So I'm going into Chang Che's film, uh, Disciples of the Shaolin, as someone who is at best a kung fu movie novice. And I was pleasantly surprised at how good and thematically rich this movie is for uh, compared to all of the other martial arts movies from this era that I had seen. And I don't want to speak out of turn about this. Like, obviously, everyone has their own opinion as to the stories in genre films and how well they are written and plotted. But generally, my relationship with the stories in martial arts films and the thematic content of martial arts films is that they're not shallow, but they're kind of one note and you mostly are waiting for the fight scenes to happen. That is not really the case in this movie. So what is The Disciples of the Shaolin or Disciples of Shaolin? Well, it is a 1975 film by director Chong Che, who, as I have learned this month watching through all these films, the lineage of martial arts films and the choreographers and performers in them, it's all handshakes all the way down. So I wish I could get more into that in this episode, and maybe I will in the future. But uh, I know Chong Che is considered one of the great directors of the Shaw Brothers cycle of films. His films, according to what I have read and especially in the booklet essay that comes with this release, is that he is one of the more well-respected and virtuosic directors of the Shaw Brothers uh, studio directors. And what this movie is about is that it stars Alexander Fusheng, uh, who is, to my knowledge, someone who passed away kind of tragically young in a car accident, and he was kind of set to be one of the next big martial arts action stars. I don't know if he was going to rival Bruce Lee or anything like that, but you can tell watching this movie that he is definitely a star. Like, he is someone who plays comedy and drama equally well. He's obviously got this magnificent form when he's doing his martial arts. The thing about Shaw Brothers Studios movies I'm starting to learn is that I always love the exhibition of martial arts at the beginning of the movie. Like, it exists outside the realm of the narrative, and it's it's fun to watch. It sets a tone. It's kind of like the overture in, like, a film that you're about to watch in, like, a nice theater. You're like, a, oh, they're setting the tone for this. But what this movie is about is about Alexander Fusheng, who is a disciple of the Shaolin, who takes a job at a textile factory and eventually starts working his way up the ranks to becoming a defender of this textile factory after using his martial arts abilities to fend off a rival textile factory from messing things up. He also has a compatriot, played by Chi Quan Chun. They're kind of yin and yang figures in that Alexander Fusheng's character is headstrong and impulsive and, you know, young and he's less thoughtful than uh, Chi Quan Chun's character who's like more pensive and reserved and like a little bit more buried emotionally. But as they give Alexander Fusheng's uh, character a higher and higher rank at this textile factory, it becomes this like commentary on like workers' rights and like how workers are treated in the workplace and it becomes this blue collar-esque <laughs> narrative which I, I don't even say jokingly about how you give one worker power and how they can kind of succumb to that power and forget their fellow man just because they can be persuaded with like you know just the littlest bit of cheese to like keep them going in this case alexander fusheng who's like kind of a simple person like they give him just like a new pair of shoes and a watch and that is like enough and obviously they give him female company and all these other things as a way to kind of like buy his loyalty and the movie is about you know these two opposing figures they're not really opposing but like opposing yet built from the same cloth figures dealing with this and Alexander Fusheng kind of having that rise and fall story like uh, him you know 
grappling with the idea that he isn't doing the right thing uh, and him kind of coming to that realization that maybe he should be looking out for his fellow man and maybe not defending uh, his employers uh, who are exploiting all the other workers at this textile factory. And it was great to watch because, like I said, I'm so used to kung fu movies of this era just kind of being about, like, we're fighting for this one thing or mystical in some way or just like someone trying to prove themselves or you, you, you rarely ever get like like trenchant narratives about uh workers rights uh in movies like this so i found that quite charming and quite good and i guess for this episode i won't be going into like a, in the action in this rules but like this isn't like a wall-to-wall action movie we'll get to that later in a box set that i'm going to be talking about but when there are fight scenes, they are these incredibly impressive set pieces in which, like I said, you see the rhythms in Shaw Brothers movies like this, but the performance comes out from the, the unique qualities comes out from the performers. So in this case, Alexander Fusheng, who is kind of a, a little bit of a comedic character in this way, like he is kind of cocky in these fight scenes. It's like fun to watch, especially the last fight scene, which I, you know, upon watching this movie, I didn't know this it is something that quentin tarantino took for kill bill because at one point in the final fight scene with alexander fusheng in this movie the uh, film stock changes from color to black and white and black back to color and it's for the same reason as it was in kill bill which is the fight gets bloody and it was a way to avoid censorship issues uh, upon releasing the film and that's a pretty fun and clever homage in my opinion but there's a cockiness to the way he fights and it's like fun it's not as like acrobatic and like trick based and like hijinks based as something like a Jackie Chan or a Sammo Hung film that's like a later era of Chinese and Hong Kong filmmaking but it still has this like flow and rhythm to it that you would only get from someone who's making like active acting choices as they're going through these motions I don't know I enjoy it. This is from 88 Films US, which is a distributor that actually specializes in martial arts films. They're actually usually doing more uh, Region B uh, releases, and this is something of a new thing that they are starting to release these films for US consumption. I'm assuming there's something going on with the Shaw Brothers uh, estate in that since Arrow was able to put out this box set and now it seems like 88 uh, Films US is also mining the Shaw Brothers catalogs for things that Arrow possibly isn't putting out. I know Shaw Brothers make quite a lot of films so that makes a lot of sense they have to kind of be farmed out to a bunch of different places but this is my first 88 Films release that I have ever gotten my hands on and I could say without a doubt they are a lot like Arrow in that like it is this comprehensive poppy packaging where it is new alternative art but it has the original poster art on the reverse side of it you get a poster which is also i think has a reverse like a reverse side to it and in addition to that you get a thick booklet like i got an education on this movie reading the essay by matthew edwards and andrew graves there is a whole feature that is called the visceral martial arts cinema of chong che and an interview with jamie look by matthew edwards international bright young thing a look back at the disciples of shaolin and its charismatic star alexander fusheng by andrew graves plus finding fusheng by carl newton these were all very educational to me to understand the context of like where this stands in like martial arts history in addition to that, you get some new commentaries with Asian cinema experts Mike Leader and Arne Vanima. Uh, you also get an audio commentary with film journalist and author Sam Digan, as well as a new interview with Jamie Luke and Frederic Ambrosine. And like I said, it includes like new reversible like artwork for the packaging. It's great. I'm actually looking forward to every other release they're going to have coming up for their U.S. branch of distribution. I kind of hope they would they'll get on the show more. But if you are someone who is looking to get into martial arts films or you're already like pretty well versed and it's just kind of exciting to have these things in HD, this release of Disciples of Shaolin is right up your alley. I can't wait to see more and I can't wait to watch more Alexander Fusheng films. And like I said, you can find Disciples of Shaolin on 88 Films US. Next up, we have the first of two titles from Kino Lorber. This is a fun title for me to be talking about because it's the almost kind of like a follow-up to a title that I reviewed on the blog. No Lord knows how many months ago at this point. But this is a film by Mei Chun Chang, 
and it is their follow-up to their film, Dynasty. It is Revenge of the Shogun Women in 3D. Tiger style. Tiger style. Tiger style. Yo. Huh? Yeah. Huh? Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to f- Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to f- Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to, f- nothing to f- On the blog, I had reviewed a film by the same director called Dynasty, and it absolutely whipped. Uh, <laughs> and the reasons why I whipped is that this is a collaboration between Kino Lorber and the 3D Film Archive, which is an archive dedicated to restoring 3D films to as best of quality as they possibly can be seen in. Uh, this film is no different. Dynasty, the reason I love that film so much is because it really gives you your bang for your buck as far as what you want from a 3D film, which is like, yeah, there's people pointing weapons at the camera, arrows are flying at your face, the action is just fast and furious. It's what you want out of a 3D kung fu film. But the difference between this film and that film is that I found Dynasty to be a thoroughly entertaining movie about political espionage and usurping power and all these like classic like hero themed things that you would want out of a kung fu movie along with body armor that turns into a boomerang thing that <laughs> gets thrown around uh and you know incredibly violent kung fu action it's very much different it feels different from a shaw brothers movies what I'm, I'm i'm learning the like subtle differences between the types of martial arts movies being made at like similar times because this movie is from 1977 and all the those things I just said about that movie about Dynasty still stand up. Uh, I would love to rewatch it someday. This movie, however, is kind of a disappointment. What this is, is that it is a movie about 13 women who train to become nuns uh, after they are sexually assaulted by bandits. When I say sexually assaulted, the opening moments of this movie are bandits sacking a town and then just like having their way with the women in it. And it's a rough opening to watch, especially in 2021. But the reason why it's so disappointing is that you're like, well, if it's a rape revenge movie, at the very least, like, you'll get that catharsis, even though revenge is never supposed to be cathartic, and we all know this, but, like, you'll get that catharsis, you'll pump your fists, like, these women are going to get their revenge. And the movie actually doesn't really give you as much catharsis as you want. Like, there is, like, a final showdown between, like, some of the main women who were sexually assaulted and, like, there is some internal drama with the women themselves and amongst this like essentially monastery because they are essentially monks in this movie. But you, it never quite hits that like fever pitch that you wanted to near the end of this movie. The action is good and the 3D gimmicks are still there, but they're not as like cleverly or as shamelessly employed as they are in Dynasty. There are some standout sequences, uh, I would say, especially near the end. But man, you really got to sit through a long sequence of sexual assault before you can kind of get to a story that isn't as thematically fulfilling as you want it to be with action that you wish was more plentiful if they weren't going to lean into the idea of this journey of these women like getting revenge or like you know, these bandits having to like reckon with what they've done. You know, I, not that all movies are like moralistic, especially like movies about like sex, sexual assault. Like this is a grindhouse movie. Like I'm not trying to, <laughs> not trying to get something out of it that it's never trying to aim for in the first place. But I will say as far as like giving an audience what they want, which is what a lot of like, you know, schlocky grindhouse movies kind of do, it doesn't really deliver on that. And while I think there are some like great set designs, I think the costumes in this are like rad. I think the actresses in these, the 13 nuns uh, in this monastery, like all of them give great performances, especially like there's two main women who uh, stand out in front. But yeah, I would say if you are interested in this, I would say go check out Dynasty first. And then if you absolutely need more of that like eye-popping 3D action, then yeah, throw this one on. It wasn't the worst movie I've ever seen. And it, it, I'm always kind of bummed when I have to like talk about a movie I didn't enjoy as much on this. But I think it's fair to say like, even if you are like me and this isn't something that like you're particularly like your cup of tea, you can at least like admire like the craft on display. I mean, it's still like a pretty well like choreographed like 3D <laughs> kung fu movie. And if you just like the gimmicks of things being shoved in your face on screen and like you can overlook certain things, like I think you'll actually have a good time with this. But for me, 
this wasn't my favorite thing that Kino Lorber released this month, but you can still find it on Kino Lorber, Revenge of the Shogun Woman 3D in collaboration with 3D Film Archive. And I should also mention that it does have some choice special features. There are three 3D shorts, uh, which is College Capers, which is a 3D short about a panty raid. There's a, a 3D short called The Persian Slave Market and Two Guys from Tick Ridge. So, these 3D releases I think are super important as someone who is actually a big proponent of 3D as like both a gimmick and a legitimate way to tell a visual story. I think this is important work that they are doing. I would love to screen some more 3D film archive things in the future, my various programming venues, but yeah, you can find that on Kino Lorber. But if you want to hear me talk about something from Kino Lorber that I did quite enjoy this month, well, then I have a special treat for you. Released this month on Kino Lorber, we have the John Woo film uh, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, Hard Target, a highly anticipated release if I am to understand the action movie aficionados on the World Wide Web. For this one, I brought in a very special guest, uh, someone I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a long time, and we're going to get deep in the paint on uh, John Woo's Hard Target, so please join me there. So I'm Jesse Bowser, PhD candidate at IU, CMCL, Communication and Culture. I study movie trailers. In my free time, I study Jean-Claude Van Damme. This is exactly why I wanted you on here, Jesse. And also, <laughs> uh, thank you, welcome. Uh, I skipped a lot of the formalities because uh, Jesse is in the studio right now. Uh, right. And we literally just finished watching Hard Target, yes, which did. is the first time I've ever seen it. It's probably only like the fourth Jean-Claude Van Damme film <sighs> I've ever seen. I know, look. We after, should fix that. After this, like, I am 100% on board with watching more. <laughs> I understand why he became so famous and why yeah. he's... It's a very charismatic figure, but I brought Jesse in because when Kino had solicited solicited this to me, I was like absolutely one hundred percent because I had only seen two of the four or five American uh, John Woo movies. Uh, I'd only seen Mission Impossible two. You know, one of those movies I defend <laughs> in a past episode of this podcast I once did. And I had seen the you know his American masterpiece Face Off, which I love. Jesse gave a little bit of a, <laughs> like, a, well, maybe. I do agree. Mission Impossible 2 is a movie you have to defend. <laughs> yes. You can't genuinely, you have to, you have to defend yourself. I mean, look, I, I, I've made my case for it, but I do openly admit that that movie really only whips the last 30 minutes. It's got, a, it's got a solid, like, middle scene where he legitimately just rips off The Last of the Mohicans. You get a nice little lab shootout, but other than that, I'd never seen, you know, never seen this one. I've never seen Broken Arrow. Still haven't seen Paycheck, which I know isn't much to write home about. But still need to see those. But I'm a big John Woo fan. Love his Hong Kong films. Love those two American action films. And I've known Jesse since going to a thing in town called Video Boom. Friends with past podcast guest Saul uh, Kutnicki. What's up, Saul? Uh, what's up, Saul? I hope you still listen to the <laughs> podcast, even though I haven't had you on in a while. Uh <laughs> Yeah, we've known each other for a little bit and it's been a mission of mine because I just, just talking to you online and like bumping into you every once in a while, it's just like probably like the biggest action movie aficionado in Bloomington, Indiana. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> like you don't care if it's good or bad, uh, like you appreciate it for what it is. And it's, it's fortunate you asked me because don't think you'll probably find too many people in town that have seen like Van Damme's Legionnaire twice. Like, <laughs> I, have the, I have the expertise. No, you yeah. have the expertise. Yeah. So <clears throat> I made the right choice having yeah. you on. So, we just finished watching the movie in my living room, and I have to say, definitely better than Mission Impossible 2. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I didn't know going, like, I knew a couple of things about this movie going in, obviously, besides what were they? like John. I knew that it was based on the most dangerous game, okay. and I had kind of known about that highway chase, like, a little bit. Like, I'd known that, like, that was, like, a super, people were like, a, this is one of those stunts that seems simple, but it's actually super dangerous. <laughs> So I knew about those things. Obviously, did you know about the haircut? I did not know about his mullet. Did not know about Jean-Claude Hall of Fame worthy. <laughs> but this whole episode of movies I've been doing have had this uh, this centering around of like Kung Fu films and Hong Kong films. Talking about the Once Upon a Time in China series. And we just watched Irma Vep last night. And there is 
this period in the 90s where Hong Kong directors are like crossing over mm-hmm. into the, you know, the mainstream like world cinema and they're applying all those different things. We're still three to five years out from the Matrix where you'll see like American filmmakers like take the, that formula and like, you know, do it with success and like doing it within the confines of the American system. Because the thing about Hong Kong action movies, which Jesse knows very well, is that they just have, they don't have a lot of regulation, at least definitely not in like the golden age between like the eighties no. and the nineties. So like people are just on a hope and a prayer. And like, so you do get a lot of very thrilling cinema, but the problem with that is like, it tra- it's hard to translate that to America. Cause right. you have to like essentially find workarounds to have people do things. Also, right. uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of Hong Kong action stars are actually like very well trained yeah. in what they do. They're not using right. a lot. Like they still use stunt doubles and things like that, but right. you know, with something like seven out of 10 times, they're doing they're the doing thing that they're on screen. Like mm-hmm. Jackie Chan is sliding down that chandelier in a police story. Right, that's right, not right. a stunt double. And most of the time you can tell they're trying to, like they won't cut around it. If you watch a Hollywood movie, you can see where they cut the stunt, you know, cut the stunt double out. In these yeah. movies, you can see that they're really doing it's, a, it's part of the appeal seeing that get translated to like four american audiences and like trying to work within yeah. those confines it seems like the movies have to lean on the more fantastical elements yeah. i guess you would say of like hong kong action cinema like there's definitely a bigger emphasis on like humor in this movie there's a goofiness to it i mean the fact that we, we were commenting on this while we we're watching the movie the fact that it starts off as a western and then kind of becomes a detective movie, then becomes like a Hong Kong action movie, yeah. and then kind of becomes a siege movie, and then becomes a Western again, yeah. and then it just becomes a John Woo movie at yeah. the end. He's and, like, and never any of those things at once. Never any of those things. Yeah, it's it's yeah. for 20 minutes, it's this, and then for yeah. the next 10 minutes, it's this. Very Hong Kong, yeah. And this has, obviously, we, we'll, we'll save Van Damme for last, but the cast of this movie is like quite impressive for the most part i mean cassie lemons who we both jo- enjoy and both mm-hmm. think had crushes on time, <laughs> different yeah, and, but like now you know a director in her own right yeah. now there is a great as wilfred brimley gets the and yes. in this movie deservedly uh, so deservedly so because you're like oh when's he gonna show up and he shows up in the last the- he starts the last act of the movie <laughs> And he's on his, he's in his compound. He's making hooch uh, out down in the bayou. He's You're doing right. a Cajun accent. He's committing to what it. Even, and it's not good, but he's committing <laughs> to the accent. Can't understand a word he says. <laughs> Can't understand a word he says, but you definitely know it's not actually As Cajun. As someone who used to have, when I lived in Montreal, had a French neighbor upstairs. Uh-huh. That's accurate. That's pretty accurate. <laughs> when they tried, when he tried to speak English to me, I, I had a similar experience. <laughs> Could not understand a word he said. He's great in this, but then... The villains of this movie, you have Arnold Valsalu, who everyone will just know as the mummy. Yeah. But I had never seen another film with him, like, except for this. I'm actually kind of interested to see, like, what else is, because he clearly has range. Like, the mummy is such a, like... The he, mummy return. The mu- Yeah, obviously, the <laughs> mummy returns. He he's really he looks like a snake in this movie and he plays it like he is a he's snake. Good, yeah. Like he legitimately enjoys being evil in this movie. He's good at it. Uh, and then we have Lance Hen- Henriksen who I love, He's great. but he is making choices in this movie. He really did. His body acting in this movie is so interesting. <laughs> I can't yeah. tell if that's a John Woo direction or if that is a like actor's choice. Yeah, it's really weird. He, he's got a great voice, number one. A great voice for that role. He's got a great face for that role, too. Like he, he, the Shadows and stuff like that. He's really good. But yeah, he's, he does a lot of uh, well, it's like gesticulating. He's, I was commenting on while we were watching the movie that he has like really good piano acting skills, yeah. which is like a hard... Playing an instrument in a movie and making it look convincing is always like really hard, uh, in my right. opinion. Because you can kind of tell immediately if they're like even kind of in sync with what's like right. what you're hearing on screen and like right, right. what it actually looks like to do the thing. And it's so funny. He's doing that. I'm like, I was kind of like, that looks great. And then when, like, he finishes playing this, like, sonata or whatever, and the person comes in, he, like, flips around, and he's, like, laying, like, supine at the piano, (laughs) like, arms outstretched, and, like, there are parts when he's just, like, gesticulating at, like, nothing, like, with his, like, weird mini shotgun, like, it is some choices. It's one of those things where I'm, like, I like movies that make choices, because at least I'll never forget it. It doesn't have to be a good choice. Yeah. It just make a choice. It feels like a lot of the the takes they use are like, you know, the ones you do at the end where you're like, all right, Lance, give me one of yours. Yeah, like, the, it's the George C. It. Scott, yeah. Dr. Strangelove right. thing where it's like a go bigger, go bigger. And then like, we promise we won't use that take. And then you use I mean, that you, take. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason I wanted to have you on is because you're such a Van Damme aficionado and him. we should talk about the man. The what makes Jean-Claude Van Damme an action star? Like what sets him apart? Because we were talking about this on the way yeah. over here. I was saying... 
I understand Sly and Arnold because like they're very charismatic men. They don't need to be like right. they just look need to look physically imposing, but they don't need to actually be doing the things on screen right. that they are you know doing. And then you have someone like Bruce Willis who kind of so still fits into that category, but like he can work in like a lot of different genres. Right. And then of these '80s '90s guys, the two that I have no experience with and had struggled to kind of figure out like, oh, well, why did, were they famous? Were Steven Seagal, which as I, even talking to you, I still don't really understand it. And I, I will watch Under Siege 1 and 2 at some point to get the best of him, I guess. And Jean-Claude Van Damme, right. who I'd seen in obviously Street Fighter, grew up watching Street Fighter a great lot. Great film. Uh, I mean, great. I mean, I mean, it's so funny. That is Raul Julia's last performance in that mm-hmm. movie. And he treats it with the utmost. Yeah. Like, <laughs> incredible seriousness of M. Bison. Yeah, um, but, and I like Jean-Claude Van Damme in that. I've seen JCVD. Like yeah. when when that came out, people yeah. were like, he's back, baby. But like, I haven't, I haven't really seen much. Like I'm kind of struggling to, oh, oh, and I've seen uh, his most famous movie. Uh, Bloodsport. Uh, yeah, Bloodsport. Bloodsport's beautiful. Yeah, I love Bloodsport. Yeah. Um, but what makes Jean-Claude Van Damme like an action star and like so compelling? So there's probably a lot of things. One, he's handsome. Let's, let's yeah, he's a, he's, he's a very good... I mean, he's called The Muscles from guy. Brussels, and he's got, like, a good, yeah. steely face. Like, right. like a cute little nose, and, like, yeah. I don't know. Like, he was good enough for Kylie Minogue. He's good <laughs> enough for me. Uh, he's, yeah, he's handsome, number one. He's got a physical charisma about him, right? The way he carries his body and stuff like that. He, he kind of does it. Um, he's very earnest. That's the thing I always think about. Uh. He's, like, deadly serious about it, even mm-hmm. though he's doing the most silly things, which we can talk about, some of the silly things he does in that movie. He's very serious, which helps, I think, the action. You know, it makes it funnier to me if he was kind of hamming it up a little bit. Too and it's true. Bit. Like, he's so reserved, probably because he's not, he knows he's not the best actor. Yeah. So he's so reserved. But I think you kind of hit the nail on it. Like, that... Deadly sin- serious. Like, deadly serious, that sincerity, yeah. like, to, like, everything he does. Yeah. Like, everything's... Fl- he says everything flat. Like, right. every- it's that is just a given. His eyes convey a, just enough that you're right. willing to forgive anything that actually comes out of his right. mouth. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. And you see that a lot in this movie. You definitely see it. I mean, there's the great <laughs> snake scene yes. where he's telling, uh, and unfortunately, I don't have like Wikipedia pulled up or anything in front of me. I don't know this actress. Uh, either, yeah. um, she kind of looks like Denise Richards. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, yeah. But she's in the woods, for those who have like already seen the movie or haven't, and I don't really mean to spoil this, but... She's in, they're in the woods, they're in the bayou, uh, and he tells her, like, close your eyes and don't yeah. move. And you think, like, oh, he's going to go in for a kiss or whatever. And then an animatronic snake comes out. He takes the snake, yeah. he punches it to put it to sleep, yeah. rips off its, like, rattle, yeah. and then, like, sets it as a trap for, like, the night. He puts a silencer on the snake is the way a, you said it. He puts it. a silencer and he knocks the snake out. He doesn't kill it. Yeah, he, not, he punches the snake. <laughs> and that scene in particular, I enjoyed just because like he is conveying like a ton with his eyes yeah. like yeah. to her at, at like that right. very moment. And you like believe him. He's yeah. like, like, I don't know. Seems like a sweetheart. That's a, that's yeah. a good way. Seems like a sweetheart. Yeah. More so than the, I would say like Bruce or Sly or right. uh, like Arnold. Well-meaning himbo. Yeah, well-meaning himbo. You Whenever said somebody says himbo, I think of that. And you know, does that persona kind of make its way in through most of his movies, or yeah. uh, do you do you feel like he tried to stretch out at any other point in his career? No, God, no. <laughs> God no. I mean, I remember. I don't think so. I remember watching JCVD. Yeah, a little bit. And yeah. like that is kind of his like yeah. serious like because you know he's yeah. playing himself. He's playing a version of himself. He's right. like you know they're poking fun slash right, like right, right. being reflective about his career and stuff like that. But I didn't know if he ever thought to himself he's like uh it's like i'm gonna try to be a little more <laughs> a little more serious this time uh but I, I don't know if that has ever like come up in any of i'm his... sure I, he might be genuinely believe the seriousness of what he's doing i'm mm-hmm. sure maybe there's some hint of like knows mm-hmm. he thinks there's a couple of his later movies where he kind of maybe there's a, a little hint that he knows mm-hmm. that he's kind of ridiculous and these movies are ridiculous but he for the most part takes it really serious which i appreciate yeah and i mean and it really does kind of feel like it pays off in spades, which is, to me, a John Woo signature, obviously there's there's incredible action through the entirety of a John Woo film, but he really is a person who seems like a, you gotta save it for the last half hour. Like, you right. gotta save, a, you gotta save just enough that people are, like, willing to sit through a little bit of slowness oh, yeah. to get, the, and, like, it's a symphony of squibs at the end of this movie. It's got a great set. Mm-hmm. It's a... They're in a, a warehouse filled with like old Mardi Gras, <laughs> like Mardi Gras floats that look like yeah. gar- like nightmarish. And I mean, you get a dove earlier in the movie, but you get your doves. You get uh, your like, there are two people on the side of a window and they are shooting. They are just walking yeah. <laughs> it, like in yeah. tandem shooting at each other. 
Wilfred Brimley shows up with back up with some bow and arrows, like he's there for support. And it's it's so funny. We talk about these John Wick movies, which are like no secret, like influenced by like all like Hong Kong action. It's like they're they're the next close approximation to this right. thing. The thing that we don't like to do anymore that I've noticed with movies like this is that nobody wants to go into the operatic nature of the action because everyone's too scared of like it coming off silly. But right. the silliness is part of the, the yeah. stew. Like, like I, I love John Wick and like I do like how sleek and there is there's comedy in those action scenes and stuff like that. But like they're, you know, they're reserved for a reason. They're supposed to be like these like slick assassins and like even the Matrix, this like lineage of like people copying people, copying people and having like the same stunt people work on like all these movies. Right. Nobody wants the artist eye to say like, uh, look, it's all right if you just put in a lot of gratuitous slow motion. Like, right. It's, right. like it's all right if you're like editing things to cheat certain things that human beings can't do right. uh you know i miss it a little bit yeah you know the silliness of you know holding the rope and you know rolling across the room and shooting things yeah <laughs> we, just, we, ne- we never get we never get any good people just sliding on their backs holding yeah. two guns like firing right, up right, right. like you don't you know you miss it <laughs> so Definitely. so for you where does of the American John Woo films yeah. for you because you like I said you squinted a little when I said I think Face Off is the masterpiece. Where does this rank for I, you? I think Face Off is like really Face Off is one of those movies that it's like I want to love it. I really do. It's too long. It's too much for too long. That's this movie. I feel it's a hundred. This is a tight hundo. Yeah, exactly. I feel yeah. like that kind of thing works because it'll wear you out eventually. Yeah. Um, Felt that way about the last John Wick movie too. Eventually, I got, I got worn out by it. Yeah, um, they get a little they get a little baggy. As far as, you know, I do like Broken Arrow quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Which I, I'm excited Which to watch you with watch. you at some point. Yeah, that is going to be great. And that has John Travolta in it, and that's good. Mm-hmm. And Christian Slater. I would say Hard Target might be number one. Like might, it's the it's most, number... I think it's the most Hong Kong of his American yeah. films. I mean, of the now three I've seen, it's definitely yeah. my number two. Like, structurally, that movie is a Hong Kong movie, right? Where it's, yeah. it's an hour of build, and then a half hour of just frenzy. Yeah, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the wild swings in genre, that whole thing. That mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. think this one might be number one. Well, and it's so it's it, that makes a lot of sense because it's his first. Yeah. Uh, it, like this it might this, be yeah. this predates Broken Arrow, right? Yeah, Broken Arrow was a little bit later. Okay. Uh, I mean, that would make a lot of sense that he would have transferred a lot. Like, yeah. I've just been like, a, I'm gonna do my best to translate what I was doing in Hong Kong over right. to America. Sure. Probably hitting whatever frustrating like walls, being like a John John Claude Van Damme. You can't just like throw him off a building. He's not gonna. <laughs> 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 like yeah. he's not actually gonna jump off that motorcycle onto a right. truck. We're gonna need to use a stunt man. You have to yeah. cut around it. He's probably like, fine, I guess. Okay. Chalion Fat never complained this much. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. This yeah. like this is of the things that I got from Kino Lorber this month. This is like easily my yeah. favorite. And this is a, it's a great release. You have an audio commentary from action film historians Brandon Bentley and Mike Leader. You have from Hard Boiled to Hard Target interview with director John Woo, which I cannot wait to watch. Yeah. Henriksen versus Van Damme, an interview with actor Lance Henriksen. Before we, before we like start wrapping up, who who gives the better villain performance, Arnold Valsalu or Lance Henriksen? Henriksen. Henriksen for sure. Yeah. I think it's Henriksen too. He's I just one. yeah. I also think uh, Arnold Valsalu's performance is just like that's just like an actually good performance you could put in any yeah. movie. Whereas Henriksen Henriksen is playing to the temperature of the yeah. movie. Definitely. You have hard times in the Big Easy, an interview with act- uh, actress Yancey Butler, who I'm going to assume was the romantic lead in this movie. Probably. And then Gung Fu and uh, Van Damage, yeah. which is a great title for a special yeah. feature, an interview with stunt coordinator Billy Burton. I think that, I- might be, that might be an allusion to, I think, the trailer for like Double Impact. Oh, yes. Do you which is Van Damme's twin movie? Yes, Double yeah. Impact, which, uh, oh no, maybe I'm thinking of the... Uh, um, uh, the Van Damme movie with uh, oh wait that's not Van Damme the one with um Dennis Rodman double team double team yeah. uh, that's not uh, Van Damme isn't that Dane Cook or something no that's Van it's Van Damme and Rodman and like Mickey Rourke well this is to say that is also by a Hong Kong director yeah. I've covered on this podcast this very episode Sweet Hark yeah uh, exactly. that is that's like his American Another crossover great film, film yeah. uh yeah but that's the, but I think he uh, did not enjoy working on that film it was immediate no. like I'm going back to China no. and then obviously a theatrical trailer something that is near and dear to Jesse's yes. heart as the former host or current host or just on hiatus host of a a Uh, podcast about research Research hiatus which i hope you have me on for someday i am still thinking about what trailer i would do did saul already claim cloud atlas oh god maybe uh i'm just i'm just saying that is one of those like great trailers of the last like no matter how you feel about the actual movie that is one of those like great like that's a insane trailer to release for a movie but anyway i will say that van damme 
his trailers are always really good. They're always he really has good. nothing to do with them. I just think his trailers they, he, they cut well for trailers. Yeah, you can do some stuff. You can pick up Hard Target from Kino Lorber. It's on 4K and 4K Blu-ray. I have the regular Blu-ray as I still don't have a 4K <laughs> player yet, but we're getting there someday, folks. But thank you so much, Jesse, for being on this episode. This is a treat. You will be on again very soon. If it were up to me, you would have been talking about every single one of these movies I had on this month because it's so action heavy, but had to had to get through them. But uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Jean-Claude Van Damme is the hard target. You miss me. From internationally acclaimed action director, John Woo. How's it feel to be hunted? You tell me. Hard target. Thank you, Jesse, so much for coming on the podcast. Finally, I cannot wait to have you back on at some point where we will talk about more action movies, be it highbrow, lowbrow, garbage, masterpieces. I don't care. I love talking to you about action movies. It was a good time. But next up, we have what is my pick of the month, even though it was a release meant for November. I decided it came a little late, but I decided to loop it in here, and it was too important for me not to talk about. We have Criterion's release of Choi Hawk's Once Upon a Time in China film series. Now, this is an incredible release for a few reasons. One, this is a gigantic decade-long spanning blockbuster, almost decade-long spanning blockbuster series about a real person who kind of became a folk legend in their own way. They had already had dozens of films and uh, stories about them, and they'd already had a lot of actors portray them. This also pretty much doesn't launch, but like is one of the like biggest notches in this actor's belt and Jet Li's belt on his way to becoming an international superstar of the late 90s and aughts. And in addition to all these things, it is a film series that has this like crazy lineage of action choreographers and directors. You know, as I said earlier, when I was talking about Disciples of Shaolin, that it's all this like handshakes passed down from like one person to the next person as far as like the craftsmanship and lineage of choreography and doing stunts. So what is the Once Upon a Time in China film series? Well, they are based on the exploits, very loosely, obviously, but based on the exploits of Wang Fei Hong, who was a like physician as well as a martial arts master. There have been stories about, you know, people seeing him get into fights. Like I think he never lost a fight or something like that. Uh, he was very highly regarded, and that's why there were so many movies made about him in the like mid to late 20th century in China. And Jet Li, and later in the film series, Vincent Zhao, who takes over for Jet Li after the initial trilogy, they are in a long line of people who have uh, portrayed this character. Well, not character, person. So what these movies are, they're all kind of these like nationalistic movies about the the encroaching fear of like the west coming into china and then also chinese people going to the western world and this also misplaced sense of like nationalism amongst zealots in china as well as like the traditions in china including like the dragon dance then also kind of becoming this like thor and the warriors three like buddy movies that have like a romance that is like vaguely incestual but it's but the joke is that it's actually not and all culminating in the like most fantastic wire work and action choreographed scenes like you've ever seen in your entire life and each film has kind of their own flavor to it while all kind of being of a piece so four out of these five but technically six which i will get to in a second Six films in this series are directed by Troy Hawk, and I think he had a hand in producing the ones that he wasn't directly directing. Troy Hawk is considered like one of the preeminent uh, Hong Kong action film directors. In the essay booklet by Maggie Lee, I think he, you know, I think it was popular to compare him to like the Steven Spielberg of Hong Kong, essentially. 
making these like blown out epic blockbusters uh, featuring like fantastical things or just like the highest production value possible. The man knows how to, like he's an incredible like cinematic eye, which is like the first two Once Upon a Time in China films in the series when like they are burning on all cylinders and it hasn't become this like thing that they're like, okay, we got to get another one out. Uh, even though for something that gets churned out, the drop in quality isn't as steep as you would expect it to be. But the lighting in each in all these movies is incredible. There's so much motivated camera movement. Like it does what every good martial arts scene does, which is like does a lot of like wide establishing shots because the people on in these movies can actually do the things that you are seeing on screen. And when they have to cheat it with editing, it isn't like this choppiness. It is really just to like get a different angle on it, but it still it never cheats like the geography of the action or anything like that. But it looks beautiful. There's a sequence in the first Once Upon a Time in China series uh, movie in which Jet Li is like fighting in the rain and like there is this like gray hue to everything, but the lighting is like so dramatic. It, like it's being, I don't know, I don't really know how to describe it, but it's like being shown from like one direction you have like it's it's just beautiful to look at the daytime scenes the nighttime scenes when there is like smoke and fog to like kind of add a little bit of like dynamics to keep things fresh it's great to look at so i understand his reputation is like one of the great like visual artists of the hong kong cinema era or the golden age of hong kong cinema and while jet lee is obviously this like revelation in these movies like you know he comes from a different background than jackie chan or sammo hung who were like trained in like chinese opera he comes from the realm of being like an actual like award-winning martial artist and so he does things that you know that someone who trained for hours and hours every day to win competitions could only do as i was talking about the rhythms of a shaw brothers movie and how everything seems like very calculated and you can kind of count the beats and you can see people hitting their marks like it's almost like it's a dance routine. And while, yeah, that is still the basis of how uh, martial arts movies work, like it is kind of a dance, like the things that Jet Li and all the other fighters in this movie are doing, clearly there is like a rhythm and a choreography to it, but we're moving at such a pace. It's so frenetic at points that you, it's insane to me people don't get as hurt as you would imagine they would on movies like this. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure there are like dozens and dozens and dozens of takes that we, you know, they failed to do this like one very impressive thing, but you would never believe it if you like, as you watch the movie, it would almost seem as if they did these things in one take and they, they make it seem effortless is what I'm trying to get at. And I would say that is the value of movies like this, but the additional value comes from you do get this like great thematic through line like i said of like east meeting west and like the this encroaching like sense of industrialism coming into play uh these are taking place in the like late 19th century and you know one film third film i think you see like a silent movie camera as like a big thing and in, in the second movie you can see like western medicine like making its way into china and like china demonstrating its own medicine with like acupuncture that East meets West theme is like so strong that in the sixth movie, which I said I would get to, directed by Sammo Hung, one of the three directors who directed uh, things in this film series, it is a essentially a warm up for Shanghai Noon, the Jackie Chan film. Uh, I'm sure someone more well versed than me knows like if maybe there's some like weird history there, but it you know I find it funny that Sammo Hung beat uh, Jackie Chan to the punch by a few years. You know, obviously Shanghai. Noon is like a much glossier and probably well-acted movie as someone like pointed out on Letterboxd, but it is funny to me that you do get like almost essentially the same movie, but one is made from like the Hong Kong point of view and one is definitely made from like the American studio system point of view. And the reason that it seems like it's a sticking point that this is a, a sixth movie in this franchise is that Jet Li is only originally Wong Fei Hung in the first three of these movies, and then that's when it becomes Vincent Zhao for four and five. He returns for Once Upon a Time in China and America, reprising his role along with his co-star Rosamund Kwan, who's playing the 13th aunt, which is this honorific title within Chinese family heritage. Like she is his aunt, but only by marriage. And it's like so far down by marriage that like there's no way they're related by blood, but it's still kind of taboo. 
it's interesting. It, it adds a lot of interesting comedy to the series. But he comes back for this sixth movie, and I think one of the titles is called Once Upon a Time in China 4. So, you know, is it Once Upon a Time in China 4 2? Is it ignoring everything else that happened in 4 and 5? Like, the continuity of the series gets kind of wonky as it goes along anyway. Like, some movies do pick up directly where the last movie left off, and obviously characters are returning. But they keep things vague enough that, like, you won't be mad. Like, you don't have to keep tabs on, like, every single thing that's happening in all these movies as you're watching them. Anyway, the nationalism stuff I find fascinating. Like, it's so heavy-handed in the first movie in, like, a good way of, like, white people and Westerners are evil. They are the villains in this movie. The Europeans are villains in this movie. Like, the British are villains in this movie. And, and like, it's kind of refreshing to see because, you know, we live in our blockbuster system where... For such a long time, like, Asians were portrayed as, like, this, like, encroaching, either incredibly evil, cold thing, or they were portrayed as, like, tourists and bumbling sidekicks and, like, or subservient sidekicks. And it's kind of nice to, like, see, like, from their point of view in their blockbuster movies at the time, it's just like, uh, yeah, white people suck. <laughs> but... I find that very charming. And then you also get the side of it of just like a, there is a level of zealotry that is also unhappy. In two of the movies, there are two cults that are trying to keep Europeans out, even if it means like harming Chinese people. I find all that thematic through line stuff very fascinating for these movies. It's fascinating how it like how they pop up and are combined. Like it's really funny that in Once Upon a Time in China 4. It's kind of just a mashup of the things in all three of the first movies. Like, you get the Europeans and Ameri Americans, like, encroaching in on China. You get the religious zealots. And then you also get the traditional, like, Chinese, like, dragon dance stuff, like, all combined into one film <laughs> as you have, like, a new star and director come into it. Uh, for the fourth film, you have uh, action choreographer Yun Bun, uh, who served as action choreographer in the other Once Upon a Time in China films, along with a bunch of other people, including uh, uh, Yun Woping, who choreographed, as I said earlier, the Matrix movies, along with a bunch of other people. Like I said, the lineage of these Hong Kong action movies is fascinating. But when he comes in, and as I said, all of these movies kind of have their own flavor and flair, when he comes in, the action almost becomes abstract because it's almost wall-to-wall -wall action and there's a lot of like cheating the edit like a lot of spatial editing and there's so much more wire work and like deftifying things happening on display that it becomes abstract like the action becomes like this abstraction of like what the characters are actually like doing on screen it's kind of hard to explain there's at one point there's a fight scene on top of a bunch of dominoes where they're kicking the dominoes over to to get them off and they all fall down and a character kicks them the other way and they obviously just reverse the footage on the camera and it makes it look kind of surreal. There's a lot of like reversing footage in the camera of like, you're like, a, oh, they jumped backwards onto a tower of people, but in reality they jumped off, but they reversed the camera and it makes it kind of surreal. I don't know. I enjoyed it. I enjoy that all these films have their own kind of flavor to them. Like by the fifth film, they're fighting pirates. There's a, <laughs> I don't mean to spoil the film, but there is a man who's been hoarding his pirate treasure down in like a cave and he's like <laughs> he's like pretty much subsisting on like greed and spite and then there's an incredible like incredibly insane fight scene between him and uh all of Wong Fei Hung's disciples I haven't even gotten into the disciples they all like there's one called Porky, uh, who's large. There's one called Bucktooth, who has buck teeth, but he's like a American-born Chinese, and so he struggles speaking Cantonese, but can speak fluent English. There's all this like things about guns in all these movies, about like the encroaching of like how does how do guns change like you know martial arts as like a discipline. And by the fifth movie, they're like, uh, actually, guns are pretty cool now, and. <laughs> Bucktooth becomes like the like expert marksman of the group. As I said, you have the 13th aunt played by Rosamund Kwan, who is a love interest in all but one of these movies. And even then they have to like play off the fact that she's not in the movies. It's fascinating. At one point, a villain in one movie, a la Fast and Furious franchise, becomes one of his disciples and becomes one of like his most, you know, feared disciples. <laughs> 
it's it's a good time and obviously you have a comedic sidekick and it's it's a good time everybody and there are six of these movies so there's like obviously like way too much to get into but this is my easily my pick of the month like watching through an entire martial arts franchise that like actually does have some like narrative consistency and actor consistency and creative vision consistency behind it despite you know the movie's getting like a little cheaper and a little more less thought out and quickly made like the first Once Upon a Time in China movie, which I think did screen at the IU Cinema like years and years and years ago part of as a part of the Once Upon a Time in Ellipses series where it was every Once Upon a Time in film. There is a final fight sequence in this movie involving ladders that like is breathtaking. I cannot stress that enough. Like the, there's ladder work in there where I my jaw is just on the ground for the entirety of it. And by the time you get to the fifth film, there's nothing as death-defying as that. But you're laughing and smirking and having a good time, you know, when you're doing John Woo style like bullet stuff in your fifth period set martial arts film. I'm okay with it. It's fine. It doesn't. I'm not going to be like, uh, it's really gone downhill. I have a great time with it. And Criterion has done some incredible restorations of these films. They've never looked better. Obviously, some of the later films, as they got a little cheaper, they've done what they can with them. But like the first three films with Jet Li look insanely good. Like these are great 2K and uh, restorations. So included with this incredible box set, there are the alternate Cantonese tracks for some of the films, specifically Once Upon a Time in China and Once Upon a Time in China 2. There is a alternate stereo Mandarin track for the voice actor of Jet Li. There are new interviews with director Choi Hawk, Film Workshop co-founder Nassun Shi, editor Marco Mack, and critic Tony Raines. There are excerpts from audio interviews with Jet Lead conducted in 2004 and 2005. There are deleted scenes from Once Upon a Time in China 2, a documentary from 2004 about the real-life martial arts hero Wong Fei Hung, From Spikes to Spindles, a 1976 documentary about New York's Chinatown featuring uncredited work by director Choi Hawk, uh, excerpts from a 2019 masterclass given by martial arts choreographer Yin Wo Ping, archival interviews featuring Choi Hawk and actors John Wakefield, Donnie Yin, who is in the second Once Upon a Time in China film, and Rules. If you ever want to see Jet Li and Donnie Yin fight, well, baby, have I got a movie for you. And Yin Shi Quan, behind the scenes footage for Once Upon a Time in China and Once Upon a Time in China in America, a making of program from 1997 on Once Upon a Time in China and America. Trailers, new English subtitle translations, which I know when I popped back onto Twitter, there was some debate as to the validity of the translations. I know that this had this box that had been released elsewhere from a different distributor earlier, and I guess there's debate as to how accurate the translations are. I've heard the argument that they are less accurate, but they are a little bit more condensed so people don't have to like pause as they miss things because I guess the other box set the translations are a little more wordy and flowery but they're more accurate so take that if you are someone who is a purist about uh, translations of foreign films like take that into consideration but for me as someone you know I don't know what I'm missing with these translations but uh, looking into it doesn't seem like there's anything too egregious just more some like small minor details in the language are going on and as I said, there is an essay booklet, a thick essay booklet, which has like descriptions and credits of like all five of the mainline titles in the series, as well as an incredible essay by critic Maggie Lee, which I learned a lot about the production and lineage of these movies, as well as a essay on the cinematic depictions of Wong Fei Hung by novelist Grady Hendrix. And I just want to also mention that this box set is beautiful like the artwork that's been commissioned for this i don't know it's this beautiful orange like two-tone orange uh color there's like a lot of like ink as if like painted with a quill or a brush like ink drawings six beautiful discs like each movie gets their own disc which i know is sometimes a point of contention with people because they want as much of an uncompressed file as they possibly can get on their blu-rays so i love this this was an incredible release and honestly if there's one thing to take away from this episode of like action films and Hong Kong films and martial arts films is that this is such a valuable part of cinema history that I think we should keep hanging on to and keep restoring and getting out there. And in addition to Arrow's release and whatever more Hong Kong films are coming out from Criterion and not just the action ones, like there's a whole golden, you know, the golden age of Hong Kong cinema, which, you know, includes people like Wong Kar Wai, 
not making action films and things like that, it's important. And there are reasons why uh, these directors and actors and performers crossed over so much to the West and we have taken so much from them. And so I hope this trend continues for a little while longer before we ne we jump to the next trend of releasing, before we jump to like the next trend of whatever ignored piece of cinematic history. I hope we get a lot of restorations of Shaw Brothers films, Hong Kong films, Wuxia films, you know, the whole gamut, mostly because I hope that it inspires another generation of filmmakers to take these techniques and, you know, run with them. But yeah, you can find the Once Upon a Time in China, the complete films box set from Criterion. It's my pick of the month. I couldn't be happier. This is in a fun month of titles to watch. I'm super stoked. It's also coming out right before Matrix Resurrections, which like that has its own lineage in Hong Kong action cinema. Obviously, I don't know what Lana Wachowski is thinking for this new. She likes to reinvent herself in these films every time they're up at bat, but it's been great. Like having that in the back of my mind while watching all these things and like knowing that you know they've influenced this like whole generation of like directors from like the 80s 90s and aughts and onwards and yeah it was a fun month so this has been the december episode of physical media isn't dead it just smells funny i'll be back in january i don't know what the future holds for january this is like the first time that i actually haven't started getting other things in but like I've, i keep up with announcements like everybody else on twitter and instagram and there's a lot of cool things coming out i hope to get more guests on for other releases in the very near future depending on if this episode is coming out before or after this uh, i had a lovely interview with uh drusilla adeline aka sister hyde which uh, if you haven't listened to that episode yet or if it hasn't come out yet, I really hope you do listen to it. But yeah, just more interviews and more talking to people who have this like connection to physical media and these films. It's, it's just been a delight. So I'll be back in January and I'll see everyone at the movies. Good night.